Welcome to Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine a retailer or brand facing a huge challenge and provide actionable steps to revive, revitalize, or rebrand them back from oblivion. This week, we'll be looking at a retailer who grew to notoriety among recession-minded millennials during the mid-2000s. She's the girl who put a whole generation of young women in bandage dresses and business casual clubwear. That's right, we're talking about Forever 21. Checking in for today's session are this week's retail therapists, Lisa Amlani and Andrew Smith. Lisa is the principal and founder of Retail Strategy Group and a celebrated industry thought leader with more than 20 years of industry knowledge and experience in merchandising, buying, product development, and sourcing with luxury and mass merchant retailers in both regional and global markets. Andrew is the co-founder and managing partner of Think Uncommon. With extensive experience helping retailers design digital and physical customer journeys and transform their store designs, merchandising, and customer experiences. Lisa and Andrew are also two of Rethink Retail's top retail influencers, which this year's list was just announced last week. So congratulations again to the both of you, and thank you both for joining the show. Thank you for having us. It's so great to be here. It's so great to hang out with Lisa, of course. Of course. I'm excited. I've got my, I've got my, um, normally when I record, I record towards the end of the week. So it's, this is going to be a really fun experiment to see whether or not I'm as ranty in the middle of the week <laughs> or later in the week when I'm tired. I think you're going to be great. I'm excited. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> well, I'm excited too. And, you know, I, I definitely invited you on this show because I totally live for your rants, Andrews. So bring on the rants. And before we get started with today's session... Let's first take a look at our patient's history. Forever 21 was founded by South Korean immigrants Jin Suk and Donwon Chang, who immigrated to Los Angeles in 1981, having dreams of opening a business in the United States. The couple saved up $11,000, and in 1984, they opened their first 900-square-foot store in LA's garment district, calling it Fashion 21. Fashion 21 was known mostly for trendy yet affordable clothing, with their main clientele at the time being young Korean Americans. In its first year, the single store made $700,000 in sales, and in 1989, the company changed its name from Fashion 21 to Forever 21 and opened its first mall store in Panorama City, California. By 2001, the company had opened hundreds of stores and became international, opening its first store in Canada. By the 2010s, Forever 21 was incredibly successful with 500 stores around the country, and the founding couple made it to number 79 on the Forbes 400 list of the richest Americans. In the decade that followed 2010, many stores were feeling the crush of e-commerce, and retailers began investing more into digital and social media while Forever 21 kept investing in more stores. In 2018, Forever 21 did begin downsizing its fleet in Europe and in North America, but we didn't hear much else from the brand at that time. And in 2019, the couple's combined net worth that was once $5.9 billion dropped dramatically to $1.6 billion. Which brings us to today. 
So Forever 21 gained huge market dominance during the 2008 recession, turning out trendy styles and fashions at a minimal cost. 2015 was their peak, so really not even that long ago, they had been at the top of their game, operating a multi-billion dollar business. But by September 2019, the retailer was filing for bankruptcy, which leads everyone to wonder, how did one of the world's largest fashion brands fall apart basically overnight? So let's start this session off today by getting both of your takes on what Forever 21 used to do well compared to the current public perception of Forever 21 today. Lisa, I'll have you kick us off. So what did Forever 21 do really well? Well, they catered to that going out top customer. I think that even though they scaled super fast, at the time, they were super relevant. There weren't a lot of fast fashion players in the market at that price point. So, you know, Zara and H&M hadn't really taken market share yet from Forever 21 as they were still scaling. I would say that the price point was very attractive and the locations of the stores. I mean, even when I was in university, it feels like a million years ago, but even, you know, in the late 90s, I remember when uh, Forever 21 launched in Canada and it was it was huge for us because we were able to actually shop online, of course, wasn't a thing at that point. So we had somewhere to go every Friday to get our, you know, throwing out clothes for that weekend. So I think that's what they did really, really well. They knew their customer at that point. And then I think when we talk about, you know, what went wrong, maybe I'll wait for Andrew first to tell us what he thinks was great about Andrew. Because I'm sure, Andrew, you also shopped in that store in the 90s, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I was still in high school in the 90s uh, and I didn't have Forever 21 in Australia. So no, but um, no, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. They um, were able to, you know, stay on trend. They did like, they often set the trend. They had that a very affordable price, which meant you could change your outfit every weekend. You know, and they, the customer friendly bit was the stuff that always stuck out. Obviously it was fast fashion. There was no competitors to fast fashion back then. Um, they were quote unquote setting the trend. So it was kind of very, uh, easy to grow very quickly for the, the, for the brand, but they, they did listen to their customers. Like a lot of the, you know, they, they kind of prided themselves in the fact that they had plenty of ways that, that, um, people who shop there can share their voice and what they want to see, you know, what are their favorite trends? What are their favorite new patterns? What are their favorite new styles? And they kind of could see that then come to life in the, in the, in the range, which was pretty ahead of its time. So it's, it did, you know, it did everything right for the period when it launched and, you know, up until, you know, the early 2010s too, it was doing an incredibly um, good job of, of just churning the machine of affordable fast fashion. Yeah. And I think it's actually interesting that you say that they listened to their customers and I think they did but just in the US because what would really cause yeah. them I think to you know go down the wrong rabbit hole is that when they scaled internationally they just scaled too fast they were too big um they didn't know who their market was in these international mm-hmm. um locations I think I had read something that um you know and I used to be a um the head of buying for for the Lauren brand for northern Europe so I know it's very well that those Scandinavian countries, they buy into winter product earlier than, you know, North America. 
And so Forever 21, for example, didn't take this into account and they were delivering product too late. We were delivering in mm. June and July because we knew that, you know, these countries obviously they're buying into cold weather earlier because it's colder. <laughs> right. And then there was also the, there was is, labor yeah. challenges and uh, they, they just didn't know. Um, I understand they didn't know what they didn't know, but I mean, do a bit of research before you're going into an international market. Yeah. Without a doubt. Like they, they did fall into the like the trap, which worked for them for a long time of kind of being, you know, very centric about where they're from. Um, and it was kind of like bringing that trend to the world was kind of the mantra. But then to your point, it doesn't always work that way. And it also means that you don't, you know, you're less ability to, to adjust and adapt to new market conditions. But you know, for a while, it worked very well. Like being from where they were and bringing that trend to the rest of the planet was kind of what their mission was at the time. Um, and it worked for a while until it came apart at the seams. Oh, did you see what I did there? <laughs> well, you might not be ranty, but you're definitely armed with zingers. Um, and, you know, I think part of the issue, too, to both of your points um, with the global and international expansion so the Changs, they owned like 99% of the company. Um, so they were managing everything, overseeing everything. Like Mr. Chang was overseeing every new store, um, both in the U.S. and internationally as well. And then Mrs. Chang, she oversaw practically every single product, you know, thousands and thousands of products that were coming in, you know, every couple of weeks they were, you know, uh, releasing new products. So, you know, which is a lot for two people to oversee. And then, you know, bringing it back to products, they were essentially setting trends like South LA fashion trends and bringing those to the world. But, you know, that then kind of spiraled into becoming this like regurgitation of all these other trends that were being put out um, in the market. And so, you know, we then also started seeing this routine of legal troubles, stealing from artists, copying fashions, and then there was no real innovative product development. It was all about just, you know, making sure that you are able to offer, you know, every single trend out there to everybody. So I think that also then kind of ties into to both of your points of, of, of really losing touch with the customers that they already had, but then also kind of generated this kind of huge criticism of the brand involving sustainability and ethics. So Lisa, I know this is a topic very near and dear to you. So I want to get your take on the sustainability and the ethics angle. And, you know, if that kind of factored into this overall tipping point for Forever 21 and, you know, just really impacting the general perception of the brand from the public. Sure. And, you know, I'll start by saying that I don't think that calling out sustainability is the right message. It's more to me about the over-skewed uh, assortment, over-development large format stores with just like skews upon skews upon skews. And that is where, you know, I would bring up the fact that it, it didn't really align with where customers were going. Um, you know, I'm definitely making some hand gestures right now that you can't see what I'm doing, but basically what I'm trying to say 
is that, you know, as resale starts to become a lot more, um, there's a lot more growth in resale, a lot more Gen Zs are interested in that space. And even, you know, Gen X, my, my generation, but I would say that Forever 21 was just out of touch with what was going on outside of their own four walls. And that's why I think, you know, them not listening to their customers, not understanding what, what was going on in the markets that they were looking to scale into. And to me, that holds really true when you see where they did well. So they did well in South America, in Brazil, for example. And that's because there wasn't a lot of other fast fashion options at the time, even I think even like late into uh, going into bankruptcy, they were still doing well in Brazil. And that tells me that what they were doing at the start of their success was still working in a country where there wasn't a lot of options. So it's almost like, did they go, it's like going back in time. And that's why they did well in, in Brazil. But then you look at their international stores, which didn't do well, they were giant stores. Um, you know, I think London, Oxford Street, I remember that store very well. I think they were trying to compete with Topshop at the time, also on Oxford Street, also a massive store um, that also, you know, sadly died. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of learnings for, for Forever 21. And, and I think that they're getting there now from what I've seen with their new ownership. Uh, they're a lot more, they're embracing digital. I think a lot, a lot more than they have because e-com was really failing them. Yeah, I, I and I, I agree with everything there. I'd build on it. I think the, the new ownership is certainly reinvigorating the brand and bringing in you know some more traditional process flows and a different way of working. And it was kind of became a, a, how do we squeeze a lemon and build a machine that can just churn the same stuff out that gets results. And of course, when you do that, you don't adapt to the market. You don't adapt to things that are changing. You don't adapt, adapt to the context. You don't adapt to the fact that your audience, the people who have shopped with you loyally, are growing. You're either ditching them, which is what happened, and becoming irrelevant to them, and then not adapting to what the next generation wants, and therefore you're losing them. So you've, like, they just made all a, a plethora of terrible decisions around where to focus at their effort and just to, to completely forget, forgot to understand their customer. Yeah. And then, of course, they, they held the decision-making so tightly that, of course, the rest of the organization, including down to its designers, there's a few, like plenty of, of, you know, of dissatisfaction amongst the designers at the time you know, around, we can't do anything. We're just kind of being told to, to take the mold and keep repeating it, which, which certainly, certainly didn't help. But the, on the digital thing, you know, their marketing was also relatively plain. And then as the, the you know, the e-com game grew, they didn't really adapt to it. They didn't embrace social. They certainly didn't embrace things like influencer marketing when that became incredibly influential amongst their targeted market. So they missed all of these opportunities as well in the hope that, you know, they could cut costs and keep going when, of course, we all know that cutting costs is just how you accelerate and to the bottom. Yeah, for sure. And I think they didn't expect to lose market share um, against those competitors like Zara, H&M, even Uniqlo, right? Mm. I think they just mm -hmm. didn't expect yeah. it because, I don't know, were they just like, you know, living in another world? I don't know. <laughs> But it's almost like they, they didn't were, see, yeah. like she, they didn't see a pretty little thing. They didn't see uh, Boohoo and Fashion Nova. It's like they just didn't want to notice that the com competition existed. 
It was very much the taxi v Uber thing. It's kind of like, no, 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 we're oh, good. Yeah. We've, you know, we're the original. Everyone loves us. They'll stay with us. Don't worry about it. But the fact that they did miss all of that is obviously just a, a, an example of poor strategic now. So it was mm-hmm. just how do we squeeze the lemon and make as much money as, as fast as possible. But, you know, when you, you know, there was always going to be competitors that will come in and differentiate and not only differentiate on product, but also the experience. And of course, when you're a brand that essentially didn't really have an experience, it was a rack shopping experience and that was it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, all of a sudden you're not only losing on, on potential fashion elements, but on experiential things as well. So like as a as a customer, why in the world would you continue to shop at Forever 21 when you can go and get better experiences, probably better prices, better fashion, and potentially, you know, especially, you know, there's so many, it's just so many little errors. Do you guys remember the story when they put weight loss bars in in plus side closing, clothing boxes? Oh my gosh, God. Um, like there's so many things like that where you just sit there and go, man, like you, were you trying to go bankrupt? Yeah. <laughs> like I think you were trying to go bankrupt. Yeah. You know, it was, and then, you know, you steal Ariana Grande's clothing. Like, of course, that's going to make you famous on the internet. Um, and you've obviously got to then pay her royalties. Like, and that was yeah. 2019. That wasn't even that long ago. So it's like, it's, it is, oh, it is now. It's 2023. We're all getting so old so quickly. Anyway, it's, uh, but like, they, they really did just try everything they possibly could to go bankrupt. Like, this is, this, this is such an example of their bankruptcy won't even make it into textbooks for universities because there's nothing to learn from it. Yeah. Because it was just so obviously done. Yeah. And then the launch of Riley Rose, I thought that was just just mm-hmm. so out of touch. And it's almost like to me, like if you know, being being you know, raised in lots of shopping in the UK, it's like they were trying to mimic Primark in a sense, because mm-hmm. Primark does very well with their beauty. And of course, and there's they have a huge assortment and lots of SKUs. But then every time you go in there, there there is uh, there's change. They listen to their customers. They have great collaboration. So I think that some of that they're they're taking that now, um, especially in the collaboration space, which I think it's interesting. You know, just thinking of what they're doing well now that they're under new ownership, outside of you know leveraging Meta and you know proving products digitally before they invest in physical product assortments. I think that is. That is where they could win. I really do think that. Yeah, without a doubt. Like they've got such an in, like a, a potential market. I was going to say their customers, but, you know, they, do they have any left? Uh, <laughs> their potential customer market are those who do want to co-create, who do want to be involved, who do want to kind of feel attached to a brand. They want to feel good about who they're giving money to. It's never going to be a sustainable winning brand in all of the ways, but what it can do is like you know at least overcome a lot of the damage, to your point earlier, Lisa. Yeah. But like um, the co-creation element is just such an incredible opportunity for them if they wanted to lean in and 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 try and elevate those voices even a little bit more. Yeah. And you know, and again, their store experiences, of course, you know, they've got the Spark ownership group. They know what they're doing. They've yep. got like they they know how to run good stores and malls and all of those kinds of things. They know what people want as well. They have access to incredible levels of data across multiple brands, including like a lot of the competitors for the Forever Twenty One brand. So, like, I think, you know, they've got everything that they need to, yeah. to launch. They just need to work out who they are. For sure. And I think from, like, almost completely ignoring the role of the influencer to now leveraging TikTok and, you know, the, the Y2K trend, for example, I mean, this is where they're going to leverage data in the right way. It is to drive product assortments and engage with their, their customer. 
um, in the way that they want to engage with the brand in. And don't even get me started on this Y2K. <laughs> it's not I, for me. <laughs> I, I, it came up and I, my, I, I, my back straightened and I was ready to go and I thought, nah, I'll leave it. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. I, I was actually in a Forever 21 store um, the other day to check it out because I hadn't been in one in years. And everything was just trends from high school and middle school and ultra-wide bell-bottom jeans and snakeskin crop tops and yep. fuzzy jacket sweaters with like the feathers on them. And I was like, oh, dear God, <laughs> how have we cycled all the way back to hell? Like, I don't understand. Oh, but at the time, it was great, um, Come on. Those, those going on yes. tops were necessary. And they're back. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens in terms of um, learning about that product journey. Because, I mean, of course, we talked a little bit about overdevelopment and, and what this type of fabric mm -hmm. does to the environment. So that that will be interesting. How much of their assortment are, are they going to, um, you know, leverage poly and all the fabrics that yeah. really made the 90s, right? Which are all bad fabrics. Mm -hmm. Lots of polyester. Mm -hmm. In a yeah, in a world too where the audience is more informed, exactly. like everyone who's shopping there now knows that Polly's terrible, mm -hmm. or at least a lot of them do. Yeah. Um, you know that we've we've seen that a lot of people are more informed about stuff like this. They're buying and their their intent, uh, their intent decisions, are shifting dramatically to wanting to be more sustainable. Their actual purchasing purchasing decisions hasn't changed that much yet. But, you know, that trend will obviously continue. But more importantly, brands react and will see that as an opportunity um, and react to it. So hopefully there's, you know, there's something there as well, because there is a more informed consumer about that kind of stuff. So it will be interesting. Um, so not the, the 90s looks won't be replicated perfectly, yes. um, <laughs> but who knows? Yeah. Hey, Retail Therapy listeners. I want to share with you a tip about a solution provider that can help retailers like today's retail therapy patient re-enter the modern age of retail. Cognizant helps engineer modern shopping experiences by helping retailers modernize their technology, reimagine processes, and transform customer experiences so that they can stay ahead in today's fast-changing market. To see how Cognizant is helping improve businesses all over, visit them on the web at cognizant.com or Check them out on social media at Cognizant. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about the in-store experience, Lisa, and you brought this up, just how massive, how colossal the stores used to be. You know, I personally remember going into Forever 21 on Michigan Avenue and the Beverly Center in L.A., and both of those stores are just just hugely disorientating and overwhelming. You know, you go in there and there's everything you could possibly imagine and nothing that you actually want. Yes, um, I remember. And I, I was pleasantly, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised when I, I went into my local store. You know, this is the first time I've been in one in probably, oh, I don't know, like 12 years or so. And everything was kind of clean and had a place yeah. and I, it wasn't the overwhelming experience that I had remembered. That said, uh, the one thing that I noticed was, you know, walking into the store, it, it kind of felt like an H&M, kind of like a Zara a little bit in just the way that um, it was merchandised and the format and the layout. But 
With that, there was really no differentiated experience. Mm. And, you know, one of the criticisms I've heard and we've talked about today is that, you know, the brand had lost touch with its customers. And so now you're seeing the stores being redesigned and rebranded. The clothing I'm seeing is more more neutrals, more basics with some, you know, there's a section of pretty like trendy items, but a lot more basics and, and neutrals. But without real differentiation, do you do you think that's working in their favor? I would say yes. The reason being is I know that part of their uh, strategy, the comeback strategy, is um, better curated in smaller stores um, and very different to what you know we're used to seeing from like their Vegas store or even their New York Times. I think it was in Times Square. That store was massive. So, you know, it's they're really looking to change the way that they were perceived in the past. I'm also, uh, you know, in doing a little bit of homework, you know, they have a lot more SKUs online because I think they've invested in their digital presence um, in a more substantial way compared to when, you know, I guess when they were slowly um, shifting into bankruptcy. So, and they admitted that, right? That their e-com was, what, 16%, I think, of total sales yeah. at that time? Yeah. So I think that is them realizing that how customers shop, most customers are digital first, and that um, you don't have to have everything you own in your store. And more supply does not equal more demand and more footfall. And these are things that slowly, surely, hopefully, that um, a lot of brands and retailers are starting to realize that, you know, not everyone, not every product needs to be on the shop floor and not every product needs to be online. So it is really about curating product assortments, listening to your customers, what do they want to see? But more importantly, how are they shopping? And what is actually translating into full price sales? And what would be interesting to see now is what percentage of sales is coming from the web now compared to when they had reported 16%. And I think the only thing I'd say, all of that's right, except for when you're doing fast fashion, e-com's hard because, of course, we all know yeah. the margin challenges of e-com. So, like, the, and especially when you bring in returns, they're going to have to be clever with their return strategies, especially as they go down to smaller stores and their footprint. You know, they had stores over 100,000 feet square feet, mm -hmm. which is just stupid. Yep. Um, down to like much more um, curated sizes, which is right for the brand. Um, you know, can they do something with their footprint? Can they use, you know, um, Simon Property Group's footprint to kind of enable cheaper return processes so that they can maintain those e-com margins? There's going to be lots of questions and PowerPoint decks flying around the boardrooms, I'm sure. But um, for me, I think, you know, they still have, you know, they've got an idea and they have a machine to pump out the idea they still have no clue who they are as a brand. Mm -hmm. And by and that is um, so obvious by the way that they have just, you know, like they've copied other designers' clothing in the past, now they're copying fast fashion experiences from others, which is smart if you just want to survive a little bit longer while you work, you work stuff out. But, you know, Forever 21 needs to go to a yoga retreat in, in <laughs> Bali and spend a week by a pool meditating <laughs> to try and find out who they are who their soul is, what they stand for, what they care about. Um, and then from there, everything else 
will flow. They don't have a design ethos, like a brand ethos right now, um, other than this kind of case study um, bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need to find that out because without that, nothing else can happen. You can't move faster. You can't design new store experiences, e-com experiences. You can't design your online social strategies. You can't do anything if you don't know what your purpose is and why you exist and why people should shop with you. So and that's a hundred percent where you have to start. Well, yeah. And you know why people should shop with you, you know, versus like Shein where you can mm-hmm. get the same. I mean, if you don't care about sustainability, if you don't care about, you know, how your clothing is made, who's making it, how people are being, you know, compensated. I'm just looking at price and, you know, Forever 21 and Shein, it's pretty much the same exact quality. And you can get almost the identical shirt that you find at, you know, Forever 21 for $14 for a t-shirt for 2 or $3 on Shein. So how can they build a, a digital presence and a digital experience that at least parallels with, with Shein or is better than Shein? Because I, I don't really see any difference um, you know, between the two, besides Shein might take a few days longer to uh, come in the mail. I don't know if they have to Which be is different, it? though. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know if the the strategies need to align in terms of price and assortment, because I feel like they are different. I would say Forever 21 is, is almost, it's closer to an H&M, even H&M meets Primark in a way. Um, mm-hmm. but what I will say is even going through their online assortment, it's actually not as skew intensive as it used to be, you know, where, where, what, you know, when you go to tops, you're seeing, you know, a certain amount of pages, which I think is a good thing. And what it also tells me is that when I'm online, there's, there's a lot of, um, different color models uh, of all shapes and sizes. And I think that is something that's super important. So there are things that I'm, I'm liking when I'm looking at what, you know, their digital presence. But I will say that it is important to tie all of it together across channel, which I'm not sure I've seen in their store. So where I see the inclusivity um, across the marketing online, I don't really see that in the store. So that tells me, you know, do they have um, separate teams? Are they siloed? And, you know, all the things that we love to fix right now um, for these retailers. And I think there's, there's definitely a lot of disconnects across um, process and, and how they're looking at their customer if there's a difference from digital to online. Which is, of course, like an, the symptom of having no brand purpose and ethos. Yes. Like they are... There isn't, there is no consistency. Is inclusivity important to you or not? If it is, it'll be all over your stores just as much as it is in online. Right. That lack of consistency is an implication that they don't have the systems internally to kind of apply any brand ethos. They don't, they don't have the ability to do it. Otherwise, they would be doing it. Um, and, and you know, again, that alignment around what is the purpose? Why do we exist? What does our brand mean? Why are people wanting to give us money? What do we stand for? What do our products look like? All of that kind of stuff. So my short answer is, I don't think they need to kind of you know, there's lots of different ways to differentiate, you know, having something that can arrive two to three days faster than Shein is a differential and you should probably use that as a, to your advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, as, um, you know, as fashion changes, as people's, con- you know, context changes, you know, with, you know, 
be able to build the internal capabilities to respond to those, to the conversation we had at the start. You know, if, if, if Forever 21 had an ability to change uh, very quickly around, around people's um, context changing, gee, they would have had an athleisure department the size of, um, yeah. I don't know, a small island um, <laughs> within a month because they could do it. They had all the capabilities to do it, but they didn't respond because they weren't strategic and they weren't responsive, but they could have very quickly. And then, but yeah, to me, I think the differential will have to come from meaning something. People are mm-hmm. more, you know, the, the, the social, the, the social reasoning of value calc- in the value calculation is still on the rise. It's up to 25% of the reason people are making buying decisions. And a lot of people who do shop at Forever 21, by the way, aren't doing it just because they like to buy lots and lots of things cheap because some people just can't afford to buy lots of even a small amount of things that aren't cheap. Um, So Forever 21 and brands like it have a really important role to play to ensure everyone feels like they can get access to fashion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's an incredibly powerful story in that for them too. And I'm surprised that they and others aren't leaning into that more than they do. I get why, you know, from a marketing point that it can feel a little bit like you're cheapening your brand. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're, if you stand, you know, if they went with that inclusivity is our everything from sizing to pricing, that's a pretty cool story to tell. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, that's a great point, which kind of makes me wonder since, I mean, we are on the verge, if not already kind of teetering into a recession, our costs everywhere are going up and we definitely saw kind of, a, a you know, a, a huge boom for Forever 21 around, you know, the 2008-2009 recession. So do you think the current economic climate then that will kind of play into Forever 21's favor? I would say yes. But I I, I actually love what Andrew was saying around the the brand ethos because um, it's something that we talked about recently at a conference that a brand has to have a point of view, no matter the price point, no matter the size of the store, no matter the, uh, the, the vertical. And even when I'm on their socials, I don't see a point of view. I don't see a blog. I don't see any content um, talking about who they are or why they exist. So, you know, that is interesting. But then if consumers are becoming more price conscious, they're more sensitive. And we know that that's, you know, that is where we're going. Um, Maybe for Forever 21, this could push them to you know, think about their brand point of view, because if more consumers are looking to shop there, they're going to start questioning, um, you know, why, why are they shopping there? And there are other fast fashion and ultra fast fashion retailers that they can shop at, like you mentioned, Sheen, where tops are $2 compared to $20, right? So it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, I think it'll be, it'll be, I'm curious to see what's going to happen here uh, with all of these fast fashion yeah, no, stores, especially. Agree, I agree, but there's also, they've got another headwind, which is the fact that they happened to, like, you know, in a normal isolated incident of a recession, i.e. nothing else happened in retail around them, you know, a recession where people do tighten their belts could be a good opportunity for them. We also know that money, like people take know, will shrink how much they spend on things, but they do also get increase their desire to go to brands they trust mm-hmm. when things are tight and things and, and, you know, you're feeling nervous. So you have to have brand trust. You can't just be cheap um, if you want to take advantage of a recession because we know that's how people behave. Um, but the only other thing is they're also like in, in this instance, this recession or shrink session or whatever we're calling it nowadays um, is 
uh, is, is surrounded by an additional piece of context, which is there is a ton of inventory everywhere. And there's going to be come about, I don't know, probably today, an offloading of all of that inventory into discounts. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they will be cheap too. So as people do shrink their belts, you know, there, there is going to be uh, this incredible level of access of, of different designs and tops and fashions and things in places like TJ Maxx's and uh, Ross and all of those things. So there is, an, there is an element there that potentially will reduce the value of the recession to you know potential growth for something like Forever 21. Won't be all of it because, again, they are still different price points and very different audiences, but still it will certainly make a dent in the opportunity that they could have had. Especially around branded apparel, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is where off-price really, you know, they do so well. Um, but I love that point that you brought up around, you know, there's – it's more than uh, them competing against other fast fashion and ultra fast fashion players. They're going to be competing with off price and the offloading of all this excess inventory at a great price, right? Brands for lives. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want those? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just got to look at the numbers, the numbers that coming out of TJ Maxx and oh, Ross and yeah. all of those things. You know, um, very quick, funny side story. Um, I was convinced until I was until my my beautiful partner very very swiftly laughed at me and then corrected me that the store was called Ross Dressfulness, so I would always call it by its full name. It's like I think I might go down to Ross Dressfulness. She's <laughs> like, why do you call it that? And I'm like, oh, is that not what it's called anyway? Oh my gosh, I love it. I like this beginning of the week, Andrew. Oh, there you go. See, it's a, a friendlier rant, then, it is, is it? Yeah. I you know what is it interesting. Um, I saw on their Instagram is that they have their own Instagram for plus for men's. Maybe this is a space where they are looking to uh, tap into more because I think that there's a lot of opportunity in um, in that plus size and extended sizing mm -hmm. uh, space. So this could be part of their strategy. But of course, how do we know? Because they're not telling us. <laughs> there's no. Yeah, that was amazing. amazing. Yeah. There's They're not telling of, us, but uh, they're also not representing no. it anywhere. Mm, That's the yeah, problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the retail industry is definitely uh, due for some decent uh, plus size clothing. I've just seen so many criticisms of, you know, brands like Torrid and oh. just churning out the same designs from the last like 15 years and just being like, yeah, you want a, a, a cold shoulder top for a uh, peplum top, which <laughs> are actually coming back into trend. That's how long that they've been giving, you know, plus size people the the cold shoulder and the peplum top yeah. is. It's been so long that it's now come back into style or is on the verge. I, I know we're seeing like peplum tops on the runway, I think, this fall. And there were some previews of the spring fashion shows with, with peplum tops. So I uh, would definitely love to see some more brands take on, you know, creating plus size clothing that appears the same as straight sized clothing. It yeah. isn't an entirely different assortment. It's the same style, just cut a little bit differently. That would be incredible to see. Yeah, I agree. He's okay. hoping, hey. Like, I know there are so many commercial implications to it. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you, and you speak to a lot of people around how hard it is to kind of have that. Um, assortment, but there's so many smarter ways you can do supply chain and design and all of those kinds of things that will reduce cost of your system overall so that you can do that. There's no reason to, but also what an awesome differential. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. And I, Absolutely. you know, ASOS actually does an okay job, I'd say. Um, 
And if they were going to look to another <clears throat> retailer um, that does a really great job digitally, no matter if they make a profit or not, I have questions about that. I think ASOS is, is a good one for Forever 21 to look at. But um, yeah. in terms of the physical store, I do really like the fact that they are looking to um, open the smaller and the more curated stores and uh, mm -hmm. really embrace that, um, you know, collaboration and testing digitally before they physically, um, you know, sample and create product. So that really, that does excite me. And I hope that continues um, in the right direction of, you know, how are we creating product? How are we assorting product? And let's test it first and you know, capture and leverage those insights before we actually, you know, scale. That is what I would love to see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My um my store here in Tulsa, it's funny, when I, I went to the mall the other night to go visit it, and I had my friend with me, and we, like, walked to the center of the mall. We found the map, and we're like, okay, where is it? And then we realized we we actually came in right next to it and we walked right past it and didn't even notice that it was Forever 21 because um, of just the way that the windows looked inside. It was very clean and there were no um, you know, yellow signs all in the windows and everything. So we didn't even know it was Forever 21. We walked right past and we shut up we're like, oh, it's right here. And we went inside. It's, it's definitely a smaller footprint, more curated. And I was pleasantly surprised. Even the sales section was more curated. Everything was um, had a place and the shoes were displayed even in the, the clearance and the sale section. So that was really nice to see. So I, I definitely would like to see more of that for sure. Um, there you go. Folded clothes <laughs> in a nice display. Yeah. Maybe Macy should take a look. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> And some decent lighting, too. would be nice. They could learn from that, too. <laughs> so I know we kind of worked through it a little bit. We've, you know, you both have presented some great uh, strategic ideas throughout pretty much this entire episode. But I do have to ask if there are any strategic changes or initiatives that you could prescribe for Forever 21, what would they be? Well, I won't take... Andrews, because I know he's going to say this one, the brand, <laughs> me. but I do 100% agree with that. Um, the smaller stores, absolutely. A consumer-centric merchandising assortment across all channels so that it all makes sense uh, seamlessly to that customer. And consider market insights and leveraging insights in creating not only product assortments, but also the store experience. And I think that the the smaller concept hyper localized store will well it should reflect um, the market. So you know exactly how you said you didn't even know that you were shopping in there um, in that Tulsa store. So that's what I think part of the remedy is all those three things. And I think they're very smart, and absolutely they need to go. Uh, they need to definitely improve a whole bunch of their tech stack. Uh, I imagine so that that ecom element and their social elements can all consistently be brought across customers' experiences, whether it be on online or in store, and then in delivery, last mile, all that kind of stuff. Domino's can get you a pizza for ten bucks <laughs> delivered in thirty minutes. Why not? Why not a shirt or a top or what? Do you, what'd you call it? Uh, the weekender top or something? Go in um, top. I'm going out to there we go. I'm I'm so hip and cool, right? Um the but no for me 100% you've got you have to have your brand purpose. Like if you 
without purpose doesn't mean we're going to feed people who are suffering from food insecurity. That is a good thing to do, of course, and it could be a cool key part of your brand. But like, why do you exist? Like, what is the point of Forever 21? And why should you take up some of this, the precious, precious consciousness of the people who would possibly be giving you money um, and find out what that is and then live by it in everything you do, whether it be the online experience, your social media experience, the way you design and, and, and you manufacture a product and the way you get it to your customer. Um, and all of that is going to come from a, just a ton of conversations with people who potentially will shop from you. Um, but also just, you know, they've got to regain their context of who it is that's in their market. They've got a whole bunch of people who are passionate Forever 21 shoppers because they were 10 years ago. Um, maybe they want to come back. Maybe they don't. Maybe there's the new markets they want to focus on. Maybe they don't. They have just no idea who they are, who their personality is and why they exist. So without that, nothing else can happen. So stem the flow as much as possible. Keep keep cutting down those stores sizes and the curated ranges. Um, and uh, whilst you're doing that, um, pop off somewhere excited to go to the top of a mountain and find out who you are. <laughs> yeah, I would say, um, you know, there's kind of a common thread that is linked all of our retail therapy patients so far, which is, Andrew, as you said, really know who your customer is, which seems so simple, but, you know, figure out why you exist in the first place. Um, because right now, all we really know is that Forever 21 sells fleeting fashions. They sell Trends of the moment that aren't really meant to last, which um, is sort of like a parable for the business as a whole. You know, like those bandage dresses and those tribal print tops that really brought them to the top. The, uh, the brand kind of fell out of favor with their customers as they moved on to the next thing. So can they regain relevance? I would say that remains to be seen, but we hope they can take some of the advice presented here and apply it to their brand strategy and maybe go on one of those spiritual retreats Andrew mentioned while wearing a going out top. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait to see it. The next company retreat uh, for Forever 21 is going to be like in a, some beach in Costa Rica and they're going to be tweeting it at me. Amazing. Can you imagine? I hope so. So Lisa, Andrew, thanks so much for joining the show today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yes. I truly enjoyed it. And I think I had a bit of PTSD um, for me buying those going out tops back in the 90s. <laughs> well, hopefully this was cathartic for you and you can work through yes, it. Yes, I, I will start that now. The cold shoulder and the uh, the crisscrossed V-neck. Yeah. And all those cowl neck tops, right? Amazing. Oh my I, gosh. Know. I know. I, need, I, need to stop. I think I think we all need therapy now. <laughs> I think so. 